For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. This is a sermon entitled The Adversary. This is part three, Revelation chapter 12, verses one through six. So back now in Revelation and in Revelation chapter 12, and I want you to think, uh, uh, think about Revelation 12 with me uh, in this way. Revelation 12 is essentially a synopsis or a one-page brief that details the history of the great war that has raged since the, the fall of man in the garden. It's a one-page brief, if you will, on this great war. Now, Revelation 12, Revelation 13, 14, this fourth cycle in the book is going to give us both history, present, and future in that great battle. But in particular, Revelation 12, dealing with the history of that great war, a war that has been raging since the garden. And if you remember that account with me, an anointed cherub, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty is the way the scripture defines him, corrupted his wisdom for the sake of his own splendor. And he said in his heart, I will be like the most high. I will rule creation. And on or by the multitude of his iniquities, he defiled the garden sanctuary of God with his treason. And he defaced the image of God in man by luring man to sin against God. He didn't attack man with brute force like we talked about this morning. He was smarter than that. He was more cunning than that. He didn't simply want to hurt the man. He didn't simply want to kill his body. He wanted to destroy his soul. So instead, he approached the woman as one of the lowliest creatures of the garden. He lured her away with the same seductive lie that first gripped his own heart. You can be like God. And the diabolos, the slanderer, slandered the word of God. Eve believed the lies of the devil. Adam failed to rule as he should have. And when Adam partook of that which God had forbidden for their own good, the serpent succeeded in murdering them. And the serpent took the throne of creation. It was a cunning act of insurrection that brought down the kingdom almost as soon as that kingdom was birthed upon the earth. Satan was there in the garden as though waiting to devour the man as soon as he was born upon the earth. Through Adam, sin then entered the world and death through sin. Even Adam and Eve themselves could not have imagined the physical and the spiritual devastation that had been unleashed by their own act of treason in the garden. Horrific wars would follow. Torture, abuse, murder, famine, disease, The thoughts and intents of man's heart became only evil continually. The very sin that kills him is the very sin that man embraces to himself. Man was now an enemy of God. The children of God had become the children of the devil. They were now the seed of the serpent. So the man and his wife, they were exiled from the garden, driven from God's presence, cut off from God. And the kingdom of man became a kingdom of darkness. The whole world now lying under the sway of the wicked one. But even before the exile, before they were cast out of the garden, hope would shine like a light through the darkness in the form of a promise from our merciful God. 
Although Satan had won for himself what would now be known as the seed of the serpent, God had elected a people for himself, a seed from the woman in his own image, a people who would fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God had promised a kingdom for his son, an elect people for his own possession, a promised seed united to him, a church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against them. However, the righteous terms of the covenant of works, that covenant made with Adam in the garden, must be satisfied. And that elect people would need a savior. So the son himself, the son himself would take responsibility for their redemption. And from divine justice flowed divine mercy. The son of God took the form of a slave. He came in the likeness of men. The true Adam, the promised seed of the woman, he himself would bear the judgment deserved by those who were in union with him such that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who places repentant faith in his son. That end was determined from the beginning. The salvation of the corporate seed of the woman, the elect of God, and that end would be accomplished through God's judgment upon the serpent and God's judgment upon those who were identified with him. That salvation and that judgment would take place through the person and work of God's great victor. Not the first Adam, but the true Adam, the son of God himself. While the serpent would be allowed to bruise his heel, this one would one day crush the head of the serpent. Now the implication of that determined end, the end by which God would save and elect people to himself for the sake of the son, and would judge the wicked, casting them into the lake of fire with the serpent and his seed, that end involved, or the implication of that determined end, was that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would forever, or during this time period, be at war. Through the fall of man in the garden, the kingdom of darkness now spreads through the offspring of the first Adam, the seed of the serpent. And it's in the context of the spread of that kingdom of darkness that God is redeeming his own elect through the victory that has been won at the cross by his son. It's in the midst of the darkness that the light of the gospel shines. And the strong man bound in his defeat is having that kingdom of darkness, having his kingdom plundered. One day, the everlasting kingdom of the son will be fully consummated. Its foundation laid upon the ruins and the rubble of that kingdom of darkness. It's all the enemies of the sun are made his footstool. It's the difficulty, it's the difficulty of accomplishing those ends. The end of establishing an everlasting kingdom under a son of righteousness, a king of righteousness, and destroying that kingdom of darkness and casting away forever the serpent and his seed. It's the difficulty associated with accomplishing those ends, the difficult labor and the painful suffering associated with accomplishing those ends that is depicted in the labor and pain that accompanies childbirth. Childbirth, the difficulty, the pain associated with childbirth is a picture of that difficulty, pain, suffering associated with the birth of those redemptive plans and purposes with the consummation of that kingdom. There will be a difficult labor that precedes the new creation. There will be pain and suffering associated with the birth of a new age. The enemies of God are filling up the full measure of their guilt. There will be persecution. The devil is enraged knowing that he has but a short time. There will be suffering. His 
seed, he and his seed make war with and persecute the seed of the woman. There will be pain, there will be sorrow, there will be adversity, there will be trial, there will be tribulation. But as the son of God himself endured and overcame with the sight of that future kingdom joy that was set before him, the people of God themselves endure and overcome with the sight of that same kingdom joy set before them. And he will raise them up with him at the last day. His own resurrection from the dead, the first fruits. The gift of his spirit with them, his guarantee. The war has already been won. That warfare, right, that cosmic battle, those accomplished ends are depicted in the, the revelatory imagery that is used in this fourth cycle of the book of Revelation that begins in Revelation chapter 12. That grand story is depicted in word pictures given to us in this chapter of the Bible. This chapter, chapter 12, tells that story. On a trip to, um, on a trip to Paris uh, several years ago, uh, we went to the palace at Versailles and walked through the gallery of great battles. It's a, a grand gallery, really, really cool place. Uh, and if, as you walk through that gallery of great battles, the Palace of Versailles, there are over 30 massive, floor-to-ceiling, priceless works of art uh, depicting uh, over 13 centuries of French victories. That's what the hall is designed to do. It's to depict French struggle, French battle, and French victories over the 13 centuries that preceded King Louis-Philippe I. It ends that those depictions, those pictures, end with the victory of Napoleon, Napoleon at Wagram in 1809. 1809. King Louis-Philippe, he was revealing something in the commissioning of that gallery, in that room. France was built through tough battles over centuries. After fighting enemies from within and fighting enemies from without, for all that time, King Louis-Philippe pronounced France glorious. And with the reign of Louis-Philippe I, they were entering a new and lasting area of peace and prosperity. That's interesting that in that gallery of great battles that ends with the Battle of Napoleon at Wagram in 1809, there was no painting depicting the loss of Napoleon at Waterloo. Louis-Philippe I would be overthrown by revolution in 1848. And his kingdom, the kingdom of France, so to speak, came to an end. The point of that example is this. The king depicted in the gallery of great battles, he depicted what he thought was a centuries-long progression to great glory, to final glory, to triumphant glory. The paintings represented actual battles, but the pictures communicated far more than a thousand words about the history and future of France. These signs that are given to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 revealed to him in Revelation chapter 12 accomplish a similar end or a similar purpose. Rather than being a mere tribute to man's pride, those priceless word pictures do in fact reveal the glory of God and the glory of his kingdom. It is a gallery, if you will, of a great battle. A woman clothed with a son the moon under her feet, a, gar a garland of 12 stars upon her head. Being with child, she cries out in great labor and in great pain to give birth. A great fiery red dragon having seven heads, 10 horns, seven diadems on his heads, standing before the woman waiting to devour her child as soon as it was born. In other words, these great floor-to-ceiling paintings, if you will, this, these masterpieces given to John in Revelation 12, depict the gallery of a great battle. 
We examined the identity of the woman in the open, opening sermons of this text and who she represents. That picture worth far more than a thousand words uh, to the history, if you will, of God's redemptive purposes and plans for those who are his own. We're now considering a depiction in that gallery of great battles. We're depicting, we're considering a depiction of our adversary, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. A great dragon, which we know from verse nine is that serpent of old. That lowly creature that approached Eve so as not to startle her in the garden as a lowly serpent is now depicted in language that reveals the power that he wields. Verse three, behold, a great fiery red dragon. A fiery red dragon has seven heads, 10 horns, seven diadems and, or crowns upon his heads. He represents authority with the crowns upon his head, with the horns upon his head. He represents authority. And this is where we see in that gallery of great battles, as it were, a picture that points us to Rome. Rome was the world empire that was in power at the birth of Jesus Christ. And Rome was the world empire still in power as John wrote Revelation. This dragon, this devil of old called Satan, is seen now as the ultimate power behind the activity and the reign of this world power. And I want you to see that as we walk through the, the gallery, so to speak, of this great battle. Again, these realities have been foretold by the prophets. And we see in the prophets the raw material associated with the symbols that we see in Revelation chapter 12. So for that raw material, we turn back to the Old Testament and we turn to Daniel chapter 7. So look at Daniel 7 with me. Daniel 7 provides the raw material for the pictures that are being drawn for us through these signs in Revelation chapter 12. And in Daniel chapter seven, it's uh, in Daniel that we're introduced to this beastly kingdom in Daniel chapter seven that's depicted by a fearsome beast with 10 horns. Look at Daniel chapter seven, verse two. And think with me about this picture. In verse two, Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other, four great beasts. Now we're, to we're told that these great beasts represent four great world kingdoms. You read through the book of Daniel, you'll see that. They correspond, these four great beasts correspond to the four kingdoms that would arise from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream in Daniel chapter two of these four kingdoms that would arise upon the earth. When we get to the, the visions of Daniel seven, eight, nine, and 10, we see Daniel's visions of these four earthly kingdoms. In verse four, the first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. Well, if you know that account, that's uh, from our study through the book of Daniel. That lion represents Nebuchadnezzar himself in the kingdom of Babylon. Verse five, suddenly another beast, the second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side as though more powerful on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. We know that would be the Medo-Persian empire that would conquer Babylon, that empire that would arise and come after Nebuchadnezzar. Verse six, after this, I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. This is reference to the Greek empire that will follow the Medes and the Persians. I commend a study of Daniel to it. It's fascinating to you, fascinating how these beasts apply to these kingdoms that arise uh, in world history after the prophecy of Daniel. Finally, verse seven, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast 
dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. Now, horns are symbols of authority. Right? Think of horns in that way. Verse 8, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. We don't have time to get into these details, but all that is a, a symbol of authority that was being wielded. And there, verse eight, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. In other words, he had the ability to reason, had wisdom, and a mouth speaking pompous words. This is a, a first iteration of what is typological of an abomination or a, um, an abominable one who makes desolate. This is the abomination of desolation. It's a, a beastly antichrist. We're gonna see these figures rise up in all of these beastly kingdoms that rise on the earth. A little horn wielding great authority with a mouth speaking pompous words later be, will be described as an abominable one who makes desolate or an abomination of desolation. This is a beastly antichrist. Verse 19. In verse 19, I wish to know the truth about this fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the 10 horns that were on its head, the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than its fellows. Notice the horn is a man, a ruler, right? It's referred to as his fellows. Verse 21, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. This is symbolic imagery, amen? It wasn't a literal horn. This is a ruler. This is a man who's making war with the saints and making a war in which he was prevailing against him, them. Verse 22, until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints most high and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, verse 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. There was a sense in which those kingdoms that came before devoured a portion of the earth. They covered a segment of the earth. This kingdom would be seen as a kingdom which covers the entirety of the earth. It would trample it and break it in pieces. It would subject and oppress the entire earth. Verse 24, the 10 horns, are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and he shall subdue three kings. The fourth beast is a depiction of the Roman empire. The Roman empire that existed at that time and covered the known world at that time, but the theologies, the philosophies, the ideologies of that empire that then spread across the entire globe. That kingdom, as it were, spread across the earth and it's never really left. The Roman Empire is depicted as a beast with 10 horns. Now we'll see this picture again in Revelation 13. The beast rising from the sea, having seven heads, 10 horns and crowns upon his horns. And that beast has a blasphemous name on his heads. Then another beast, we'll see another beast in Revelation 13 that rises from the earth. That beast looks like a lamb, but it has the voice of the dragon. It speaks the words of the dragon. He speaks like the dragon. He performs great signs and wonders, and he causes many to worship the first beast. As we'll see when we get to that chapter, Revelation 13, these two beasts represent worldly authorities. 
The numbers 10 and 7 are significant. 10 is a number of completion, uh, a number of wholeness. Number 7, wholeness or completion. So these two beasts represent worldly authorities on the earth, political authorities, religious authorities, political authorities with the first beast rising out of the sea. We'll see that when we get to Revelation 13. The second one, the one that looks like a lamb but has the voice of a dragon, religious authorities on the earth. And these counterfeits get their power and authority from the dragon. We'll see these symbols are symbols. These depictions are symbols of power. They're symbols of authority on the earth. 10 representing completion. Seven, another way of representing fullness or completion. Most frequently with the number seven, it's speaking of the fullness or the completion of the created order. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, uh, putting an end to you will, if you will, to God's creative work. We're going through a sixth-day Sabbath, if you will, and there is a seventh-day Sabbath that awaits the people of God. It's a representation of the created order, the order of the cosmos. So 10 and 7 here would indicate global authority or comprehensive authority or power that this dragon and his beasts have over the entire earth. In Revelation 12, John sees a second vision in heaven, a second picture, if you will, a depiction of this beast. And this beast has seven heads, 10 horns. Those seven heads, 10 horns, represent global authority. They represent global power. They represent an anti-kingdom. If God is calling out from the earth to himself a people for his own name, if God is calling his elect to himself, the church of God, the kingdom of God spreading across the globe, this would be the anti-kingdom. This would be the anti-church. This is the kingdom of darkness being spread by the seed of the serpent, the seed of those born to the first Adam. This dragon having seven heads, 10 horns, representing global authority is a usurper. This is a counterfeit power, a counterfeit authority. He himself is the power and authority behind these beastly kingdoms that we see. In fact, the beast that rises from the sea in Revelation 13 is a combination of all those beasts described by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. If you flip the page and look at Revelation 13, he describes the beast rising out of the sea as like a leopard. He has the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power. And what do we see in Daniel chapter 7? We saw a leopard, a bear, a lion, and then this fourth terrifying beast that comes after them. So here in Revelation 13 now, at the very end of the age, we see this fourth kingdom, if you will, this fourth, this fourth beastly kingdom represented by this beast that now has seven heads, ten horns, that in, Daniel's, in Revelation 13 uh, looks like a leopard, has the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. In other words, it's... Um, it's representative of all of this world's beastly kingdoms that come under the power and authority of this devil, this dragon in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon having 10 heads or seven heads, 10 horns, representing his global authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. So the beast that arises from the sea in Revelation 13 is a combination of all those. In other words, when the beasts then, when the beasts then open their mouth, when the horns speak great things and blasphemies, they are speaking for the dragon. Revelation 13, it's the dragon who gives them their authority. 
They parrot his agenda. They spew forth his ideologies, his philosophies, his false religion. So that in the words of Revelation 13 verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is who the dragon is. The dragon is that power, that principality that lies behind the evil beastly kingdoms of this earth. And he gives them their authority. When they speak, they speak for him. He has the seven heads with diadems upon his heads, crowns upon his head. He has the 10 horns representing earthly authority. This dragon now in Revelation 12 is fiery red. That's the color associated with the second horseman in Revelation 6 who brings death upon the earth. That's the color that is associated with the scarlet harlot in Revelation chapter 17. The harlot rides atop the beast having seven heads and 10 horns. She makes this world drunk with the wine of her fornication. She herself is drunk with the blood of the saints. She is the demonic counterfeit in Revelation 17. She's the demonic counterfeit of this woman depicted in Revelation 12. Everywhere that God's truth is depicted or God's truth is asserted, Satan creates a counterfeit. Satan manufactures a lie. He is the liar. He is a liar and the father of lies. So he creates this demonic counterfeit, this harlot that will ride atop the beast in Revelation 17. Drunk on the blood of God's people. She has global authority, power over the nations, over those who dwell on the earth. Where the woman in chapter 12 represents the people of God, the seed of the woman, she represents those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth listen to her. She is the, she is the anti-church. Again, th- this is a counterfeit of God's people. She represents, speaks for the dragon. Now there are people who are killed in this war. No doubt about that. There are countless multitudes who will perish, body and soul, destroyed in hell. But this is not ultimately a war between physical troops lined up across from each other on a field of battle. It's not like that gallery of great battles at the Palace of Versailles. You don't see British troops and French troops lined up across a field facing each other with guns. Those physical wars are the result of an ideological battle. The French Revolution was the result of an ideological war, empty and bankrupt philosophies. Those physical wars are the result of a spiritual battle that rages behind them. Satan spews forth lies, just like he did in the garden. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. The battleground isn't first a patch of dirt. The battleground is first in your heart and in your mind. We talked about that this morning. The question comes down, whose word are you going to believe? Are you going to listen to the voice of the harlot or are you going to listen to the voice of God? Are you going to listen to the words of the dragon spoken through these these beasts or are you going to listen to the word of God? Whose word are you going to believe? So back in Revelation chapter 12, now in verse four, this deceitful dragon with global authority, with his tail, verse four says that he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Drew a third of the stars of heaven away. Now, oftentimes the stars in the Bible, stars refer to the people of God, as we talked about last week, and they refer to angels. We saw this demonic horde that was unleashed upon the earth as locusts under the fifth trumpet in Revelation chapter nine, if you remember when we worked through that text. 
that demonic horde of locusts had a sting in their tails like that of a scorpion. Under the sixth trumpet, the judgments associated with that trumpet, his demonic horsemen spewed smoke and fire and brimstone out of their mouths. They were unleashed upon the earth and they had tails like a serpent. They had tails like a dragon and their power to harm was in their mouths, the fire and smoke that proceeded out of their mouth and in their tails, their tails with which they stung men, tormented men who dwell on the earth. So in Revelation chapter 12 now, we see this dragon himself with power in his tail and with his tail, he cast away, if you will, a third of the stars of heaven. He threw them to the earth. Now we saw last week, stars are associated with purity. They're distant, if you will, from the corruption that is associated with, that, with this earth. They're associated with purity, separation, sanctification. They're holy, as it were. And the innumerable host that is associated with God is often referred to as stars because of their separation to God from the immorality associated with this earth. They shine in the firmament. They shine in the darkness. So as those stars are associated with the people of God, the church, they are also associated with the angels of God who are thought to be pure. Job says that the earth was created as the morning stars sang together. Speaking of angels, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Both those statements referring to angels. So when is it that Satan drew away a third of the angels of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's something we've heard before and understood to be the truth, that Satan drew away a third of the angels of heaven with him and with Satan they were cast to the earth. We know that Satan rebelled against God prior to the fall of man. We found Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter three. So we know that this great rebellion, this great treason took place somewhere in the space between Genesis two and Genesis chapter three. Because in Genesis chapter three, we're introduced now to this serpent who had committed treason against God and now is deceiving the woman. So it would certainly appear from the text that follow that angels rebelled with him and left with him. However, it's interesting, this specific language used in Revelation 12, referring to Satan being cast down to the earth and his angels, his demons being cast out with him, this takes place at the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Revelation chapter 12, down in verse uh, seven, this casting of Satan to the earth takes place after the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse seven, war broke out in heaven. After the son was caught up to his throne, war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So I would submit to you that this is the place that is being referred to here in Revelation chapter 12. Satan was cast out, being cast out of heaven. He drew a third of the angels with him, fallen angels who fell with him and they were cast to the earth. And as we'll see working through Revelation 12, that demonic force, those demonic forces, headed by Satan, now persecute the offspring of the woman. They persecute the people of God on the earth. We see that taking place in the New Testament, right? We see that happening now. Those judgments poured out under the trumpets, uh, those judgments poured out under the seals, that demonic horde unleashed upon the earth, that's all taking place during this age, during this time period between the first coming and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ.
So the victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, the worthy one, arrives in heaven after his defeat of Satan on the cross. There was no room in heaven for them any longer. So they were cast out, cast down to the earth. Satan was enraged, knowing now that he only has a short time. And the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman now continues, and it's only intensified. So in Revelation chapter 12, then, verse 4, the one who is the enemy of God, the one who would drag a third of the angels with him, the one who has purposed to kill the seed of the woman, now stands before the woman and waits to devour her child as soon as it's born. We'll continue, consider the identity of the child in verses 5 and 6 uh, next week, if the Lord allows This, brothers and sisters, is the blueprint, if you will. Revelation chapter 12, the blueprint of this great battle. It's a gallery of a great battle depicted in word pictures that represent the masterpiece of God's revealed redemptive plans and purposes to us. And the question is, whose word are you going to believe? So we think about applying this to us. If if we think rightly about Revelation chapter 12 as being a war manual, if you will, for the people of God, then what are we to take from these depictions? What are we to learn from our understanding of that great battle? Satan has been cast to the earth, enraged. He could not, was not successful in devouring the child as soon as he was born. That great war was fought. Satan is a defeated foe. He knows he has a short time. He's been cast to the earth. And now his main goal and aim is to pursue and to persecute the offspring of the woman those in union with the son. His demonic horde, a third of the angels, have been cast down to the earth with him. And their aim is to do the bidding of their master, the devil, whose aim it is to persecute the seed of the woman. War has been unleashed upon the people of God on this earth as the foundations of that kingdom of darkness crumble around them During that time, God himself is calling out from that kingdom. He has bound the strong man, as it were. He is now plundering his house, calling out for his own name a people, an elect people for the sake of his son, who will inhabit that eternal and everlasting kingdom that will be consummated at the end of the age. While the kingdom of darkness crumbles around the forces of darkness, God is establishing the everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed, calling a people for his own name out from the kingdom of darkness. While that persists until the return of Jesus Christ, there will be war. War is no time to compromise with or to entertain the propaganda of the enemy. We cannot compromise with the propaganda of the enemy. We're to stop being conformed to the patterns of this evil age. We're not to allow the forces arrayed against us to press us into the mold of this evil age. We've got to stop being pressed into that mold. Stop thinking the way that they think. Stop listening to what they're saying. Stop doing what they're doing. Stop acting like they act. Stop loving the things that they love. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need to understand what is that good and perfect and holy and acceptable will of God. Paul warns in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1, he warns us, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Again, this is not a battle that takes place on a physical battlefield with soldiers lined up against one another, holding guns, pointed at each other. This is a battle that takes place in your heart and mind. 
Some, Paul says, will depart from the faith, giving heed to that enemy propaganda, giving heed to deceiving spirits, giving heed, giving heed to doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, uh, this world, this world system, that fourth beast. And what do we know about that fourth beast? Standing behind that fourth beast is the dragon. The fourth beast speaks for the dragon. When the fourth beast speaks, he spews the philosophies and ideologies of the dragon. The harlot riding atop that beast speaks for the dragon. The beast that rises out of the sea speaks for the dragon. The beast that rises and stands upon the earth speaks for the dragon. Everyone uh, that you hear coming from that fourth beast is speaking to you the words of the dragon, desiring to press you into the mold, the ideologies, the philosophies of this present evil age. The more and more and more that you succumb to that pressure, the more and more seared your conscience becomes to that voice. The more insensible that your conscience becomes that it is the voice of the devil that speaks to you. I would submit to you that uh, professing Christians today were often uh, extremely guilty of being naive, of being really ignorant of Satan's devices and Satan's schemes. And in those voices that we hear, we are, we're often not discerning enough to hear the voice of, this, of Satan behind the voice of that person or that figure or that ideology or that philosophy. We've become numb to those things. I've often you know, thought of just the simple example of you know, a fraction. If you took a fraction of what is said on the nightly news in our day and you bellowed that on TVs 50 years ago, uh, people would absolutely be shocked and appalled at the disgraceful blasphemy that is pouring out of the TV uh, and it would, have, it would absolutely appall them. But we are the proverbial frogs in the increasingly hot water. <laughs> and it just doesn't uh, appear to us with the same level of blasphemy uh, as the same level of evil that it is. Why is that? Because to some degree, our conscience is seared as with a hot iron to the voice of the enemy, to the propaganda of the enemy. The more and more that we succumb to that pressure, the more and more that we, we fail to be renewed or transformed by the renewing of our mind, the more and more that we fail to be washed with water by the word, the more and more seared that our conscience becomes, the more and more insensible we are to the voice of the, of the enemy until at last you are insensible to the truth. Insensible to the voice of God now. And you easily begin buying into the lies of the serpent. The spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. How is it that they depart from the faith? faith. They give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. This is not a battle. It's not a war that takes place on a physical battleground. This is a war that takes place in your own heart and mind. This battle has been raging from the beginning, and we face a very deceptive foe. For people say before, well, if I was in the garden, you would have fallen just as quickly, just as easily. <laughs> We face a deceptive foe, and his deceptions are myriad. They are manifold, even and especially now. 
His deceptions are myriad. They are manifold. We must overcome. We overcome, as Revelation says, by the word of our testimony. <laughs> by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of our testimony. We must endure. We overcome and endure through the power of his Spirit, according to his word. We've witnessed examples of exactly what Paul is warning us against in 1 Timothy 4. We've witnessed examples of that with our own eyes. Many have departed this church, and they don't depart the faith. They may go to another church. Many have departed this church and departed the faith altogether. We've witnessed that with our own eyes. They go from agreeing with you to believing lies. They go from agreeing with you to believing deceptive philosophies. They, they start believing the propaganda of the enemy. Again, that battle takes place first in your own heart and mind. Remember, I was thinking about this text, a conversation, uh, multiple conversations, pleading, pleading with a guy here uh, years ago who insisted, insisted that he was a genuine Christian, believing the truth, and it was within a short time after multiple conversations that he left um, intractable, could not reason with him, and shortly after became fully Catholic, embracing Catholic theology uh, entirely, entirely an apostate. And that's just one example of many examples. Some will depart the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we, brothers and sisters, walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. They're not fleshly weapons, do you see? They're not carnal. They're spiritual weapons. Mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Casting down people? No, casting down arguments. Again, this is not a battle that takes place on a physical battlefield. It's a battle, a battle that takes place in your own heart and mind. Casting down arguments and every high thing, every high thought, every high philosophy, every high argument that exalts itself against the, what? The existence of God? No, the, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. It's taking place in your mind. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, for casting down arguments, for bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Every thought, do you see? First, brothers and sisters, we cannot compromise with nor entertain the propaganda of the enemy. And you're getting you're getting, whether you realize it or not, you're getting a steady stream of enemy propaganda. Uh, you're like that one um, in the prison camp. They've got the speakers turned up and you can't, you can't shut it out. It's just being drilled into your mind. That's happening day in and day out. How do you battle against that with the word of God? Those weapons are, are warfare. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You battle that with the word of God. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ who went before us, uh, battled the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. We're to battle in the same way with the word of God. So one, we're not to entertain or compromise with propaganda from the enemy. Two, we must preach Christ and him crucified until a consummated victory is secured and all enemies are made a footstool for his feet. We have a responsibility to be a witnessing people, a witnessing people as God is calling out of this 
darkness, calling out of this kingdom of darkness, this kingdom of man, so to speak, out of this enemy kingdom. He is calling out of that kingdom of people for his name. And he's calling out of that kingdom of people for his name through the preaching of the gospel. We are given responsibility to preach that, that gospel. And until he calls his, the last of his elect out of that kingdom, you and I must preach the gospel, preach the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what we've said in working throughout, through this book, in particular, looking at the seven churches in that first cycle in the book of Revelation. The Lord, the one who walks in the midst of the lampstands, his primary concern for the church is a, an enduring and overcoming witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. They must maintain their worship and they must maintain their witness. That was the Lord's concern with his church during this age. We must be concerned about our worship that not be mixed with the ideologies of this world. And we must maintain our witness, preaching Christ and him crucified until he returns. So we have work to do, amen? And we have a battle to fight. And we cannot lull ourselves into a sense, a false sense of security or a false sense of complacency in that battle. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray, God, that um, through our consideration of this book, through our understanding of these things and thinking about them, that you would make us vigilant and faithful soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that the battle takes place first uh, in our own gray matter, in our own hearts, uh, and then uh, that is manifested or demonstrated in the way that we speak, the way that we think, in the way that we act and conduct ourselves. That battle is then taken out to the world as we preach the gospel to the lost. So I pray, God, that by your spirit, you would help us to wage the good warfare in our own hearts and minds against the ideologies and philosophies pouring out of the serpent in this wicked world. You'd help us to, you'd protect us from those deceiving spirits, those lies. You would preserve us, you would help us to overcome. You would keep us anchored, grounded in your word. And then, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would empower us, motivate us, enable us to be faithful witnesses for our Lord Jesus Christ and lost, that we would preach Christ in the darkness until all the stars of light are brought out for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of your own name. We pray these things. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.